Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Striding, the director of La Trobe Asia. Indonesia aspires to play an active role in regional and global affairs, and its public expects broad influence. How can its foreign policy ideas adapt to a changing and contested region? And how can prospective partner countries such as Australia build trust and relationships? With me today to discuss these issues is Professor Dawi Fatuna Anwar, a research professor at the Research Centre for Politics at the National Research and Innovation Agency in Jakarta. She's also the chair of the board of directors of the Habibi Centre and former deputy secretary for policy affairs to the vice president of Indonesia. Thank you for joining me, Professor Anwar. Well, thank, thank you, uh, Beck. It's, it's an honour uh, to be invited. I'm very happy to take part in this conversation. Let's get straight into it. Thinking first about Indonesia's foreign policy and its position in the world. I mean, this is a region that is becoming increasingly contested. Uh, we're seeing uh, heightened strategic competition, particularly between the United States and the People's Republic of China. So I thought I'd begin quite broadly thinking about what Indonesia's key foreign policy interests are, what its objectives are in coping with a contested region that is in flux. When is the region not in flux? <laughs> so, you know, the more the region changes, the more it stays the same. You know, for us in Indonesia, the external environment has always been challenging. Uh, and uh, broadly, you know, for all government, for Indonesia, there are permanent priorities, but different administrations have focused on other priorities as well. Clearly, the most important thing is for Indonesia itself, you know, to ensure its own national independence, its sovereignty, its territorial integrity. Indonesia is a, the largest archipelagic state with many sea lanes of communications, you know, very porous borders. Clearly, you know, it is always very anxious that the waters do not uh, become security threats to Indonesia, whether from traditional security threats, for example, military activities of other countries, or non-traditional security threats, you know, because we have had terrorism, people smuggling, as well as various uh, non-traditional security threats uh, like natural disasters and so on, you know. So, so we have a range of, uh, of issues. It's not just geopolitics. Managing the uh, maritime resources have become even more important for Indonesia, you know, to ensure its economic development. But when it comes to great power competitions, this is seen as both a challenge and an opportunity. It's a challenge because there's always a danger that big powers, external powers, would like to divide Southeast Asia, you know, that is, if there are certain things that Southeast Asian countries do not want, is to go back in history to the early days when different colonial powers occupied and controlled the political system and the, the territory and the economic relations, the external relations of different Southeast Asian countries, so that Southeast Asian countries became very divided among themselves. That's a period that no Southeast Asian countries want to go back into. And during the Cold War, as you know, the region is divided ideologically as well between the capitalists and the communists or the non-communists and the communist regions. The, the most important priorities is, you know, to ensure the peace and stability of the region, to ensure that Southeast Asia remains united, the strategic autonomy of the region, the zone of peace, freedom and neutrality, you know, the ZOP concept, 
remains very important, within which the different countries can continue to grow. So uh, the peace and stability is considered to be the prerequisite you know, for economic development. For Indonesia and like for the rest of the ASEAN countries, you know, most of the strategic concerns, most of the security concerns remain primarily from within. Because for Indonesia in particular, uh, the questions of keeping the territory together is not because of fears of external invasions, but because of separatist movements, because of regional grievances, keeping the nations united because there are, you know, uh, over uh, 700 different ethnic groups in Indonesia ensuring national unity is a never ending challenge for Indonesia, ensuring connectivity between the different islands uh, so that we can deliver not just political goods, but the economic goods in you know, the social welfare and so on. For Jokowi in particular, the economic priorities is paramount. When he looks to external relations, he's much more interested in the political economic dimensions and particularly the economic dimensions, developing the connectivity to support this idea of a global maritime backroom, connecting Indonesia within Indonesia as well as Indonesia with the region. Uh, when it comes to geopolitical issues, Indonesia has remained consistent with its foreign policy stance, its non-alignment, its free and active foreign policy. It engages all sides, but doesn't want any one country to become too dominant. Now, if one were to ask, you know, what does Indonesia want to see in the region? I would say, you know, strategic autonomy and strategic agency. The region will not be used as a theater for uh, proxy wars. And that the region, particularly, you know, ASEAN plays a central role in uh, creating a regional architecture which is inclusive, i.e. all countries should be uh, able to participate allowing no country to dominate. In terms of changes in continuity, I see you know, more continuity in Indonesia's uh, strategic outlook and, and priorities. It's a really interesting point you make about you know, continuity and change and this idea that we kind of always think that the region is in flux and that that is something that does continue on through different periods. But I was hoping just to, to ask you a bit about the, the question of strategic autonomy. This is something that you, you mentioned a few times. And I think that there's a concern uh, among some within the international relations community that even though Southeast Asian states would like to maintain strategic autonomy and they take what is sometimes referred to as a hedging approach, that this becomes more difficult under conditions of increased strategic competition. So there's a concern that smaller and middle power states in the region might feel the need to choose or pick a side, or they might feel like external powers would like them to pick a side. So I was wondering, what's your view on this? Is um, a hedging sort of strategy where states don't have to pick a side uh, likely to continue on? Or do you think that there is more pressure on states, Indonesia, but also Southeast Asian states uh, more generally, to either, you know, in the regional context, side with China or side with the United States. If you look at country specific, some countries are closer to others. You know, even within ASEAN, this is a given. Indonesia has always been uh, one of the few truly non-aligned countries in the region. When Indonesia took part in creating ASEAN, Indonesia is the only non-aligned country. Now that there's an ASEAN 10, interestingly, Vietnam is becoming closer to the United States because of common concerns about China. You see the Philippines flip-flop uh, is a treaty ally of the United States. 
Singapore has always been very close to the United States. Laos and Cambodia would always be closer to China. You know, that's a given. Vietnam would never be close to China, regardless of what the geostrategic condition is. So within ASEAN, the idea of aligning everybody has never been able. It's a non-starter because our strategic culture is very different. And that's why ASEAN could never become a defense alliance, why we can never develop into a military alliance. But if you look at various surveys been done at the ASEAN level, the choice has been not to pick sides. In Indonesia, we always say bebas active, free and active foreign policy doesn't mean neutrality and not taking a position. For Indonesia in particular, uh, I can't say for all the other countries, it's been able to do it in a more functional way. Who provides the most investment in which Indonesia really feel a real need? The United States, Western countries are not interested in infrastructure investment because it's risky, it's long term, you know, uh, not clear return on investment. But countries that are interested is uh, China and Japan. So the competition is between China and Japan here. The competition to build the high-speed railway between Jakarta and Bandung is not between the United States and China. It's between Japan and, and China. This is the game that Indonesia has been playing since its birth. And uh, when it comes to security, it's another matter. Indonesia's attitude towards China is still equivocal, deep-seated distrust still towards China not just on the geostrategic, geopolitical side, but also in the economic side. You know. uh, for men on the street, the concern is not about the South China Sea. It's about the influx of Chinese imports. It's very difficult to find fruits which are grown in Indonesia. Both the manufacturing sectors and the uh, agriculture sectors are very upset about the ASEAN-China free trade. And there are concerns about the influx of Chinese workers into Indonesia also. So when it comes to geostrategic issues, we see that Indonesia continues to develop very close military-to-military cooperation with the United States. Recently, the Indonesian army and uh, the U.S. army carried out its largest ever uh, joint exercise. And then the United States is helping to build this maritime training center in Batam to improve the capacity of the Indonesia's uh, Coast Guard. You know. So we choose different sites for different issues. And I think that the market is big enough for that. Well, recently Australia has advocated that Indonesia exclude Russia from the G20 meeting following the invasion of Ukraine. And in response, Indonesian representatives have pointed out that Australia invited Russia to the 2014 uh, G8 after the annexation of Crimea. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, this is clearly a point of tension among states in the region about how they're positioned in relation to Russia. So what is Indonesia's attitude to the Ukraine crisis been, but also in relation to Indonesia's uh, relationship with Russia and how it sees Russia's role in the Asian region? Firstly, when it comes to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, Indonesia joined over 100 countries in the General Assembly criticizing Russian invasion, which is considered to be you know, violations of international law. Indonesia's position is very clear there. But when it comes to the G20, G20 is a very important forum in its own right. And you know, at this time, of, uh, we are not fully recovered from the pandemic yet. And the agenda for G20 is necessary, not just for the 20 countries, but also you know, globally, because the G20 is the pole bearer for various uh, decisions that can be taken at the global level. You know, Talking about global health architecture, 
uh, about the digital economy and so you know hard decisions needed to be made by everybody and Indonesia has been pressured by the United States by Canada and so on uh, not to invite Russia but uh, the Indonesian position has been you know we are not in a position not to disinvite anybody and I think that a solution has been offered that if Putin is invited you know then the the Ukrainian president needs also to be invited. And I've just seen a tweet from the uh, Ukrainian president that President Joko Widodo has actually talked to him, has made very clear his support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. So, you know, Indonesia will want to ensure that G20 itself is not undermined by the crisis, but we cannot pretend that the Ukrainian crisis does not happen. You know, it's not business as usual. And hopefully, you know, um, by inviting uh, the Ukrainian president, uh, maybe there'll be a, a possibility for Indonesia to play a bridge-building role where more constructive dialogues can be developed. But uh, relations with Russia is important, but the economic links remains quite minimal, but it is still important. But interestingly, the Lawi Institute talk about the fact that the majority of Indonesians are not that interested in international affairs. They are not that well-informed about international affairs. But there is a very instinctive uh, reactions against what it says as US and Western intervention and Western bullying. And if you look at uh, various surveys, including one uh, done by the Institute of South Asian Studies in, in Singapore, the attitudes to China and the United States at one time, particularly during Trump administrations, equal numbers, over 73% of Indonesian distrusted both China and the United States. And here, you know, one has to understand that when Indonesia looks at the United States, this is not just about the Indo-Pacific region. Indonesia is the largest Muslim majority country in the world. It has a very strong interest in the fates of other Islamic societies. It has committed itself since its independence, uh, since 1948, to support the independent state of Palestine. So the, the position of Indonesia and the United States were the issue of Israel and Palestine have always been diametrically opposed. So when people in Indonesia look at the United States, this is not just about US versus China. The bottom line is uh, all of these countries are problematic. Historically, we've had problems with all of them. The attitude has always been, you know, that's why we have to rely on our own national resilience. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that you make about the nature of public opinion. And you also said that, you know, there are a lot of things uh, historically that Australia and Indonesia have disagreed uh, about. So I wanted to ask you now uh, and turn our attention to the state of the bilateral relationship uh, and get your assessment on the health of Australia and Indonesia relations at the moment. Bilateral relations have always been robust. People have written about this, you know, we are strange neighbours. Less strange than before, you know, once Indonesia has become a more democratic society, you know, with democratic quality, we have more in common. The strategic culture is very different. Australia is very much a US ally. It prides itself in its alignment with the US. While for Indonesia, any alignment is anathema. That is already a major departing point. But both countries regard the bilateral relations are incredibly important. So even when we disagree, there is always a desire, you know, to rebuild it. Although, you know, it's like roller coaster, you build it up slowly, then goes down quickly. But the fact that we quarrel over so many issues is testimony of the fact that we are doing so many things together. You know, we don't quarrel with Argentina too much, you know. <laughs> uh, we don't quarrel with Vietnam, you know. Within ASEAN, we quarrel with Malaysia all the time because Malaysia is the closest country to us. You know, there's the people-to-people -people connections with Malaysia 
is so intense that there are just so many points of entry for disagreements. The truth with the case with Australia, the people-to-people connections are both our strength and our weakness. Indonesia will continue to be suspicious of Australia's intention on Papua. Uh, you can't eradicate that because it's history, you know, Australia's role in East Timor, the independence of East Timor. A lot of Indonesians blame Australia's role for that. And then, you know, a lot of Papuans who, who disagree with Indonesia seek the refuge, asylums in Australia that upsets Indonesia. Australian holidaymakers brought drugs to Indonesia and got jailed, you know, and, and that upsets a lot of Australians, you know. So many issues precisely because there's so many things going on between us. But at the strategic level, despite the different strategic culture, uh, both countries have tended to be more or less on the same page. You know, we want a peaceful and stable region where every country can grow, a peaceful, stable and prosperous Indo-Pacific. Uh, the different ways we do that, I don't see that as an issue. Indonesia's way is to go the diplomatic way, the more conciliatory way. And Australia has always been part of that. Uh, in 2005, when East Asia Summit was first mooted, uh, some countries only wanted it to be ASEAN plus three. China, Japan, and South Korea. It was Indonesia who said, no, no, we do not want an exclusive Asian only. So East Asia's footprint was widened at Indonesia's insistence to include India, Australia, and New Zealand. We might call it East Asia, but in fact, it's only very much Indo-Pacific from the very beginning. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you about the Indo-Pacific concept because it's quite controversial in some ways. It's a concept that Australia has enthusiastically adopted and driven in a lot of ways, but it's one that, you know, China is not quite a fan of. I think Chinese Communist Party sees the Indo-Pacific as a kind of containment strategy, as being an anti-China strategy. You've used the term Indo-Pacific a few times in this seminar. Does Indonesia have a sort of Indo-Pacific concept that it's using? Is it similar to Australia's or is it different? I think it's an important question about how Australia and Indonesia view the region because Australia and Indonesia are two of the few countries that actually span across the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how Indonesia views that Indo-Pacific region. Well, like Australia, which started to use the term Indo-Pacific in its uh, white defence paper 2013, Indonesia also started to introduce the subject of Indo-Pacific in 2013. So Indonesian Prime Minister Martina Talagawa, under the second term of President Susilo Bambangidoyono, actually suggested that there should be an Indo-Pacific Treaty of Friendship. And this is because the Indonesian Prime Minister then already saw the rise of India in the increasing saliency of the Indian Ocean, so that we cannot only focus on the Asia-Pacific domain, but we need to pay more attention to the Indian Ocean as well. And Indonesia has already revitalized, you know, the IORA as well. You know, under Indonesia, so the first summit of the Indian Ocean Rim Association was hosted by Indonesia. So the concept of uniting two oceans into one strategic concept already been entertained by the Indonesian government, even during the SBY administration. Uh, of course, the more serious approach to the Indo-Pacific region came during Jokowi's administration, when he articulated the needs to make Indonesia into a global maritime parkroom, because physically, Indonesia really straddled the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Oceans, as well as the, the Asian continent, the Australian continent. But really, the, the focus on the maritime domain 
has been the hallmark of particularly the first Jokowi administrations. So Indonesia has been, sees the concept of Indo-Pacific very much in line with its own global maritime park concept. When the various initiatives came, then a free and open Indo-Pacific from Japan, there is this feeling that the Indo-Pacific concept was defined in a more restrictive way. The free and open Indo-Pacific is seen by some, by China as a containment policy, but also by propagators of this free and open Indo-Pacific is, is something different from what China is doing. And that's why Indonesia has taken the lead in 2018 in promoting the concept of ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific. You have to note it's an outlook, not a strategy. It's not an ASEAN strategy on Indo-Pacific. It's an ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific. An ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific is simply to continue to use what ASEAN already has, you know, all the ASEAN mechanisms. The ASEAN regional forums already comprises all the South Asian countries. The East Asia Summit has already comprised also India. The various mechanisms, the ASEAN Plus mechanisms, ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting Plus and so on, you know, already comprise all of the salient countries. The point is, you know, just use the ASEAN mechanisms. But Indonesia doesn't make any comment about the Quad. Three US allies plus a non-aligned India feel the need to get together over China. So you can see India playing its role as well. On China, India is closer to the United States. On Russia issues, India is closer to China. So for Indonesia, it's very important that the term Indo-Pacific for us is, is non-political and it's not clearly defined either. There's no clear mental map where it starts, uh, whether it starts from the western coast of California to the eastern coast of Africa. But in practical terms, it's, you know, you know the triangle, Japan to the north, Australia, New Zealand to the south and India to the West. For us, this is our living space. And in fact, it's only in the later part of 20th century that the Asia specifically matters because before that, civilizations, trade, religions, cultures all came through the Indian Ocean, after all. It's a really important point you make. Indo-Pacific as a term is used in a, a number of different ways. And it's important for us to kind of unpack what we mean by the Indo-Pacific. But I wanted to ask you one more question. Thinking about Australia and Indonesia relations, there's a view that in Australia that Indonesia is more important to us and to our sense of national and regional security than we are to Indonesia. We look north to Indonesia. Indonesia looks north to Southeast Asia and is a leader within ASEAN. Does Australia get much of a look in when international affairs is is being discussed in Indonesia? Are we considered to be important for Indonesia's Indo-Pacific outlook? Well, of course, you're our best friend, though our relationships tend to be love and hate. But don't feel bad that, you know, Indonesia occupies more of the Australian minds and Australians exercise Indonesian minds because your neighbours are the Kiwis and the Penguins. So, of course, you have to look north. If you look to China, you have to go through this archipelagic state called Indonesia. And there are so many things happening in the north, in Indonesia and through Indonesia. With Indonesia, there are so many things going on within ASEAN, even without the external dimension between Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and there's Myanmar all the time and China is always there. And then Japan is always there. North Korea, you know, and, and then to the West, where we have a lot of non-traditional security threats. Australia gets attention when things go wrong, usually. When things go right, we don't pay attention too much to Australia. But when things go wrong, 
or when Australia does something that Indonesia feels does not reflect the close relations that we are supposed to have. You know, Indonesia and Australia have signed, you know, this framework security agreement. We are supposed to be in close communication with each other. There's a two plus two forum between defense ministers and foreign ministers as well. But a week after the meeting in Jakarta between the two defense ministers and foreign ministers, Australia announced AUKUS in Washington, you know, and Indonesia only heard about it from the media. And that upsets Indonesia no rent. It has been forewarned and explained beforehand rather than explaining after, that without the explanations. When I am asked, for example, by the media, why is Australia doing this? There will be a lot of speculations. You know, we will not be in the know. So there's still a lot of trust that needs to be built here and there's more, better communication. In terms of personal relations, personal relations do matter. Some personal relations are better than others. And I have to say that usually during the Labour government, uh, more efforts are made to develop the personal rapport. You know, the more dis- more interest in identifying Australia as part of the closer neighbourhood. While during uh, Liberal government, quite often, you know, is the connection with Washington that is more emphasised than the neighbourhood. Interesting. We do have an election coming up in Australia, so that might affect Australia and Indonesia bilateral relations going forward as well. Thank you again, Professor Anwar. It's been an absolute delight to have you uh, with us today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for all the questions. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on all readily accessible podcasting platforms and reviews are always appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beck Strading and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading and thanks for listening.